So, um, if you know somebody who'd like to join us for the last four weeks, didn't make it for this one, I'm going to be putting the Bible studies up on SoundCloud. Someone can catch up if they want to. All right? Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this time in your word and beautiful evening. Good fellowship, the food, we're grateful. In your son's name, amen. Okay, Timothy. Now we're only doing 1 Timothy, it's six chapters, four weeks. Well, things will get divided up a little differently tonight, just the first chapter. Second week it'll be two chapters because they're really short. Um, basically the amount of text you see on the page now is how much we'll be getting through each time. It's, it doesn't eat up that much uh, that much effort. Um, background on Timothy, and that's why the map's here. It's not because there's any traveling in the book of Timothy. Um, but this is my map of Europe and the Middle East. And you can't see from where you are, but you can see Italy, right? Italy, Jerusalem. Um, on the first missionary journey, St. Paul went up through Perga, Antioch of Pisidia, to uh, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and then went back and back to Jerusalem. Here's the Vanna White. Um, so, um, on the first missionary journey, he had some. He had that circumstance in, in, in Luke, I mean Acts um, 14, where uh, in Lystra th there was a tradition of a certain myth uh, that people not showing hospitality to the gods and one couple finally did to Zeus and Hermes. And so they thought Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes and started to offer sacrifices and caused some confusion. This is in Lystra, which is right there, just south part of Asia Minor, and um, uh, then some Jews showed up from Antioch of Pisidia um, and Iconium and caused a riot, and they beat Paul up and threw him out of the city. Second missionary journey, he comes back through Lystra, and he finds Timothy there as a young believer. He's been raised, there hasn't been that many years, so he's probably a, a an early adult at the time he may have heard Paul but his mother was a Christian and his grandmother Lois and Eunice um, and uh, Paul mentions them in 2nd Timothy and he mentions um, uh, picking up Timothy in Acts 16 but a reasonable young guy at this point he's not mentioned in the first missionary journey but then he's recognized as a stable believer by the second missionary journey. Um, so that's where Timothy comes on the scene. Um, you can feel free to look at the map anytime uh, if you want um, afterwards. Um, what else about? Paul mentions in 2 Timothy, I have the passage here on the side, uh, 2 Timothy 3, and he refers to Timothy's recognition of the work of God in Paul. He says, now you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings, and then he says, what befell me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra? What persecutions I endured? 
<coughs> so he's recalling Timothy to that time when Timothy hadn't seen the persecution. So he's probably old enough to have spotted what had happened in those uh, in those days, but not old enough to be out on the road with a an apostle. So think of him at his maybe mid-teens when he first sees Paul get persecuted. It, Paul goes back a number of times and says, you know how you were raised? You know you were raised in the scriptures. You know your mother was a believer. His father was a Greek. Um, and uh, um, he wants to always refer him back to those things. Okay, you are done, Vanna. Thank like, you. Can I put it here? Oh, yeah. It's sort of like uh, one of those big band things that uh, orchestra, the Asia Minor Orchestra. Or Asia in minor. <laughs> That's recorded. That's going to be on the internet. Okay, let's look at the actual text of First Timothy. The writing of First Timothy is late in Paul's post all the book of Acts. Okay? The possibly written from somewhere in Macedonia or particularly perhaps Nicopolis, which is on the Adriatic side of over here near Ithaca, facing Italy. Uh, Paul was headed there, and he, when he wrote to Titus, he said, I'm going to meet them at Nicopolis, and it seems like he's dealing with the same time frame, Titus and Timothy, and um, Timothy has been left in uh, Ephesus, where Paul went into Macedonia. Second Timothy is right before Paul dies. This is while Paul seems to be free between his imprisonment in Rome at the end of Acts. It seems that he was released, has X number of years of ministry, perhaps making it to Spain, perhaps other things that he wanted to do. He gets arrested again, and in Second Timothy he's in prison, and he's got not long for the world. So that's around 60... Um, 65, 64, 65 A.D. So you don't have that many years between the time of the conversion of Paul, maybe, you know, 30, 35 years between his conversion and his death. And Timothy steps into that um, possibly around 50, 51. So Timothy might have 12 years of working with Paul, um, but... He has been, uh, he and Titus are, are viewed as apostolic delegates for, for Paul. And he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, maybe he's, he is claiming in that, my true child in the faith, um, that Timothy may have become a believer through the preaching of Paul and then just grown into his maturity to where Paul was impressed enough with him to take him with him on the journey, the second missionary journey. He may have been his father in the faith that way. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the divine training that is in faith. Now, before we go any further, we know from 2 
um, Timothy? We know from 2 Timothy that everyone in Asia had deserted him in his ministry. Ephesus is in Asia. So Paul's hopes for Ephesus, his hopes for the Asian churches are in some ways let down. Um, uh, but that's why he's left. There's this pressure of other teachers coming along um, and teaching something different than Paul was teaching. Now, Paul himself, when he was dealing with the Corinthians or, or the Galatians, you have to he was using every inch of his apostolic authority to try to keep people on track, and they still wouldn't. Sometimes they'd respond, sometimes they wouldn't. We might be in the situation ourselves and go, what's the big deal? People are picking different churches, different theologies all the time. Well, we don't have an apostle st standing there going, no, 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 that's not the right way to think about it. But somehow you've got to get your head around the fact that even with the apostles or the Lord there, people were not being um, convinced, you know, let alone by some popular uh, modern teacher. But the reason he was left there is that he was supposed to tell these people to knock it off, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than divine training that is in faith. Now, myths aren't necessarily false. They're just possibles or they're fictions that were developed. I've been following various threads on the internet where people are just inventing stories about the Bible. Not new stories to put in the Bible, but different ways of looking at a scripture that they add information to it and it changes the meaning. They have mythic, speculative um, involvement rather than divine training that isn't faith. So there's a... You, you, some people, when you say, I don't think this group is a Christian or this group is a Christian group, and they say, well, how can you say that? He said, well, the apostles said it. Ever since the beginning of the church, false teaching has not only been there, it's been successfully there. So an awful lot of people who were true believers were believing false, false teaching. That's why Paul's trying to set them back a bit. The idea is that speculations are not a path to knowing. You, you, you've been in the situation where you've talked about winning the lottery. Have you ever been in that conversation? What if I won the lottery? What would you? Well, first I would give some money to the church. Or if they're talking to Evan, first we would give a lot of money to the big house. Well, nobody we know has ever won the lottery. But I don't believe they would do that if they did. That's just my, my speculation there. People speculate about what wouldn't it be nice if. Uh, they like speculations because you can write fictions, write fictions that please you, that make you feel exactly how you want to feel in this spiritual moment, if it's a biblical speculation. I, I mentioned this to Al during dinner. I was in a discussion on Facebook the other day with a friend of mine who'd been a pastor in central Washington, and uh, he was looking at, you know, the end of Proverbs, where it uh, has the, the sayings of King Lemuel of Massa, which of sayings his mother taught him. And the speculation was, some people think that Lemuel is another name for Solomon. Some people think. 
Nobody telling us who those some people were or where they got the idea. But on the speculation alone, that made his mother Bathsheba. And then they got this wonderful lesson of how God can use somebody after an awful moral slippage like Bathsheba went through to not only give birth to the king, but write a portion of scripture. Well, they hadn't proved any of it. But it made everybody feel good. All the comments were feel-good comments. Oh, that's so, that's so special. Finally, people started going, hold it. Where did you get this idea that Lemuel was Solomon? Nowhere. It just made us feel good. But a lot of churches deal with speculations. The famous camel through the eye of a needle. Did you know there was a gate in Jerusalem that, well, there never was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of a needle, and neither did, was there camels that had to get down on their knees to get, oh, isn't that, doesn't that make you feel good? They got down on their knees. You know what that means? You, some of you kneel while praying? Anybody? Okay, Leslie. You guys are not very religious. Now, promoting speculations is not divine training that is in faith. Now, that's a wide open door. Divine training that is in faith. What, what's that going to be for you? Well, he, thankfully, he keeps writing. Verse 5. Whereas, the aim of our charge is love. Now, one of the things I want to warn you about is this first chapter of Timothy is almost a practical, personal letter that reflects the new covenant of the Christian life wonderfully in a kind of a teaching, edifying letter between one guy and another. He's not expecting that we're going to sit here in North Idaho looking at an English translation of a Greek letter he wrote to a friend, assigning him certain things, but this, the, the nature of the Christian life is so evident in this first chapter that it's well worth uh, us looking over his shoulder. Whereas the aim of our charge is love. Not endless genealogies, not myths, not speculations, instead of divine training. And then by suggestion, the divine training is aiming at love. Thankfully, he says, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But suddenly you start to find this divine training that is in faith elaborated on or, or broken apart, added to. Love results from having a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And this is set up against, this is not, this keeps you out of bad doctrine. Walking in the light as he is in the light keeps you out of bad doctrine because people don't know why their life is on the skids when they don't have a pure heart, a good conscience, or a sincere faith. Love is not issuing and they're not rejoicing in what's happening in their life morally or spiritually. So they start looking around the horizon for the new choice for themselves to pick up a, a new shift in theology or an experiential thing. People are susceptible when they're not following the divine training that is in faith. It says certain persons, by swerving from these, those three things, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, have wandered away into vain discussion. Endless genealogies, myths, speculations, because people are trying to build not with authority, not with 
what was said to them by the apostles, but they're trying to make up a Christianity that's, that will suit their particular need. And they desire to be teachers of the law. Now, that might be that might be a positive thing. You know, teachers of the law are good and you should, people desiring to be, it's, or maybe they're at, you know, desiring to be a bishop. Teachers of the law. But I don't think that Paul is. I think he's saying they desire to be teachers of the law because that's where people go when they want to be feel more spiritual than the Holy Spirit will make them feel. They will teach the law. Now the reason I say that, a choice between are they seeking to have some compliment given them or are they doing that which they ought not do, teach the law, is because what he says next. But let's, before we go into that, let's look at the pure heart and the good conscience and a sincere faith. The new covenant is an ethic based on the fulfillment of love as the greatest commandment in you. The greatest commandment is love. Love fulfills all the law of the prophets. It does not wrong its neighbor, St. Paul says in Romans. Um, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you fulfill all the laws. You do everything God wants you to do if you love. So it would be far better, rather than becoming a Pharisee about all the laws, you become a loving person. And the love comes out of these things. Purity of heart, goodness of conscience, and a sincere faith. So you have to, your belief has to be real. Sincere, not insincere. There are people who know they're talking to a pastor and they, they're trying to say the things that you will approve of. Not that they believe something else, but their faith in those things is not sincere. They don't look out their eyes as if that's the truth. If you ask them the religious question, the catechism question, they'd give you the right answer. But that's not a sincere faith either. Catechism answers aren't the true answer. How the person lives, because all faith has works, right? Faith without works is dead. That applies to all faith. In faith in everything. Whatever you do is the faith you have. So, if a person is not living the life that they ought to live, their failure, their doing of that, tells you what they believe is true. So our, our faith in Christ has to be sincere. In other words, it, it is not just a claim of our religious doctrine. It's a claim of your eyes look out of your head with those definitions placed on everything you see. What is my Christian definition of this? What does God think of this? Because you know from Abraham, he believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the example of faith. He believed God. A good conscience. Responsiveness to your... In other words, your heart tells you, or your... The word means with knowledge, conscience. I don't know what the Greek word is here. But referring to that aspect of you that is sensitive to the, to the moral condition of things. We're not given a list of rules to follow in Christianity. That's not what Christianity's like. It's love, not law. It's grace, not law. It's everything but law. 
and Christians, non-Christians, or, 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 or Christians who want to become notable, always find that greater righteousness is found in their minds in teaching the law. So you will find uh, Christians who say, oh yes, we're saved by grace, but we're sanctified by the law. And Paul says, who has bewitched you? Oh, first, oh you idiot Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, you're now ending with the flesh? The law is always the flesh. The law is the way fleshly people think about the faith. Our conscience is our guide because we're in the Spirit, our conscience has to be good. We want to do the good, but it has to be good on the basis of, of uh, a, a real responsiveness to what God wants. So when asked you to have a good conscience, that means when you've given the liberty of Christ to you, you can do anything. When St. Paul says in Corinthians, all things are lawful, do you, does your eye brighten? You go, oh, yeah, really? If I go to Pullman, can I smoke weed? All of a sudden, a person's conscience, when you're left to it, is, it represents. Like your faith is always represented by your works, your conscience is represented by what you seize on as morally good. What bothers you? What doesn't bother you? A pure heart means that you've been cleansed. For whatever sins you have committed, when it says in 1 John, um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Our center, no, we're not talking about the, the seed of your emotions, we're talking about the center of your being. That down to the center of your being, not just the superficial sins that you got caught in or people see, but the things you know you're wrong in, you've confessed them and he has cleansed you. You've gotten the purity of heart and you're also your measure of your purity of action as your conscience guides you, you know you do good. Purity of, of your motivation from the very center of your being. Well, these things are all contribute to the way you walk up to your neighbor and love him. Issues from that. A love that issues from these things. So when he says, these guys desire to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make assertions. This does not, is not talked about near enough. No, there aren't enough people like St. Paul around who will say, no, you may not do that. I don't care if you're a famous Baptist. You may not say that. That is not Christianity. That is not the new covenant. People minimize the covenant. They minimize the promise of it in Jeremiah 31. They minimize the writer of Hebrews building the whole book of Hebrews around this shift. And they say, let's forget all that. They'll forget Galatians. They'll forget Romans. They don't recognize the, the obligation of the, of the new covenant and what it deals with. So these guys desire to be teachers of the law. There are some radical religious groups like the Albigensians or other groups that went into radical libertinism. You know, very 
uh, aggressive, oh, we're free, and they went off and send up a storm. Um, there are bad doctrines that go that way. This is not one of... Paul is arguing for liberty in Christ, guided by these three things, that produces a love, that produces a faithfulness to God's will. These guys desire to be teachers of the law, and they don't understand what they're saying. He says, now we know that the law is good. This is why I said, I think he is saying it is wrong to desire to be teachers of the law. Because in the church, we know that the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully. So a person always comes at you with their you know, fleshed out Old Testament views, and they want to bring, you know, oh, we should really be, have you ever considered whether you should have a, a more limited diet? Well, no, because Jesus Christ declared all foods clean. So shut the heck up. But no, it's in the Old Testament. Don't eat shellfish. Or whatever. Pork. Bacon. People in the Christian faith are running around, some with great piety and some with just, you know, messing with you sort of uh, uh, approach, wants you to sanctify yourself by obedience to the law. And he says, yeah, we know the law was good if you use it lawfully, understanding this. So this is what they don't understand that the law is not laid down for the just. It's not for good people to live by. Got that? The law is not for good people to live by. Good people in Christ live by love. That's what the new covenant is. You would never do the wrong to someone. And then it gives a list, and I centered it because I am allowed to do that in Adobe. This is who it's written for. It's not for teaching in churches. It's for the lawless and the disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners. For the unholy and profane. Them. You know. Church people. No, it's lawless people. External written code that never regenerates. It never did in Old Testament times. It didn't do in New Testament times. It never will in the future. It doesn't fix anybody. But it is the law of God externally so that the lawless and those that have shaken their fist at heaven, those who don't or are impious, because I like to use the word impious. Impious is what other people would say. Impious. Ungodly people and sinners. This is the great struggle between them and the morality. You see it in the, the world's struggle with you know, homosexual marriage or whatever else is going on. Um, white women say they're black. All sorts of stuff. And the Christians sometimes are suckered into that. That's where the law should be preached. Oh, no, yeah, well, God is against liars. God is against homosexuals. Because it says it. For murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. For manslayers, that picks up anybody else you kill. Immoral persons... Um, that's uh, the word there is is sort of like a male prostitute pornos is the word we get pornography from it sodomites and in case you're wondering the word means someone who goes to bed with a man and it doesn't mean women it's, it's a combination of two words one for man and one for go to bed with so a homosexual I think the NASB has a homosexual Kidnappers, that would be slavers. He's not saying there's a real problem with kidnapping uh, people for extortive purposes, not in the ancient world. That was 
really for slave selling. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, the law of God, the character of God external, is what is there to remind the non-believer of his wickedness. It doesn't fix him. It increases the trespasses, Paul argues. It makes him feel more wicked. And where the, the, the law increases, sin increases. But it's not written for the just. You've got to make some kind of break with thinking of your life in terms of law-abiding. Your goodness in terms of being good by the law. It's a very dicey question. Paul, the other apostles, dealt with it all the time. It wasn't easy to understand. Every religion in the world, including the one God had before the Christ, functioned on this basis. Tell you what you have to do. Ceremonially, morally, you know, civilly, whatever it is. And we want to know if there's a big enough stick out there to threaten me should I do it. But the new covenant is different than all of that. And it's something you want to read Galatians again, read Jeremiah 31 again, because it tells you the law written on your hearts. We won't have to be told, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. Now, he's just said to Timothy, this is why I left you there, because there are people teaching this nastiness. And we're so thrilled to be closely aligned with all the conservative churches who have the greatest tendency to do this. And do this not only in their own churches, but societally wide. Okay? They, they want to bring out, they always want to post the Ten Commandments down on the city square. Which actually is a good application of this. That's for the unjust. That reminds the wicked all the time. You should ask every bar owner, can I put these up in here? That's what we ought to, you know, not up in the churches. Now, Paul, the, the, the danger is that people think that when the new covenant is followed, there's too low a bar against sin. Paul's relationship to it here, verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength for this. Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful by appointing me to his service, though I formally blasphemed and persecuted and insulted him. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He had not believing in the Christ. He knew about the Christ, heard about the Christ, persecuted Christians, but he was ignorant of the truth of it. Now it wasn't like he was a stupid hot and tot in the desert in Africa, never heard of a missionary. No, he had talked to the Christians. He had arrested the Christians. He had had the Christians killed. It wasn't like, oh, I've never heard. His unbelief left him in a state of ignorance, and God had mercy. You can see Paul in Romans 7 talking about what it was like to be someone under the law, wanting to do what was right and failing to do it, not being able to make it because he... Um, um, because he uh, uh, only could want it. It just didn't have the strength to make it. And he gets to the end of Romans 7 and says, 
Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, he has consequently, just like he pointed out to Timothy, what he learned his faith from, how he learned it from Paul, how he learned it from Lois and Eunice, how he had been uh, spoken of highly by the people at Lystra. He'd watched the experiences Paul had been through. He had listened to the scriptures down there in verse 15. How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which were, are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We forget sometimes. Where's that line? I think it's early part of Revelation. One of the churches, they've forgotten they were cleansed from their old sins. Or you have forgotten you were cleansed from your old sins. Or you forget the love you had at first. Those sorts of reminders, Paul reminds himself of what he was brought out of. When he says in Corinthians um, 6, I think it is, Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, um, he gives a lot, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Gives a list much like the list we just had here. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We were brought out of all of that. So we should have a high view of God's price he pays for sin and the and the portion of our narrative, our life narrative that sin was. Paul was had blasphemed and and persecuted and insulted. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The mercy of God extended to you when you finally, you felt like, oh my gosh, what have I been thinking? Those of us who are not the lawless and the disobedient. There are some people who will persist in their life, all their life, with a complete submission to their own law in the world. They are lawless as far as anybody's authority over them. They are skilled at sin. They take pride in it. And these are not just hell's angels. These are, you know, regular folk who insist on having it their own way. At some point, when the gospel is preached, those that have been pursued by God, those who have been... Um, uh, brought to a right point and the scales fall from their eyes figuratively um, there comes out of that situation high view of sin, high view of God's grace um, this faith and love that are in Christ Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus that's where grace is supposed to go. Grace is supposed to be a handmaiden of these other things that are guiding your life. Remember, sincere faith, good conscience, pure heart, and a love that issues from those things is also being prompted by the grace that has come to you in Jesus Christ because you've had an experience with Jesus Christ. And he says, verse 15, and I have it bold, 
the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So it seems like self-evident. We get that ever since we were little kids in Sunday school watching flannel graph things being done by our Sunday school teacher. You got the idea that some kind of this cross thing is important. I was getting that, and you know, I was raised in a Baptist church, and so you got a lot of uh, forgiveness of sin talked to you. But sometimes we we forget it in our conscience, we forget it in our heart, we forget it in the sincerity of our faith that Jesus Christ came to, if ever I start to get if I ever start to get uh, uh, I'll just hang it up is that what you do? that was my phone um, oh my friends are here huh? <laughs> Who could be calling me? Um, the phrase like when you see a therefore, when you see a, a verily, verily, all these things that tell you very explicitly pay attention to this. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. Don't mess with this saying. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I am the foremost of sinners. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He's an example. That's what you are. You're not some sort of, I was always a saint. Jesus Christ has made you good. Therefore, you pretend like you never had a misspent youth. You pretend you are never a rotten person. I became a Christian when I was eight. I was a rotten person. And I was self-consciously a rotten person. I wasn't a rotten person that my Sunday school teacher had to tell me I was rotten, my, or my parents had to tell me I was rotten. I knew I was rotten. And I knew what the gospel was for years prior to that, and I wanted none of it. Because I was rotten. Now, I wasn't mature in my lusts, certainly. I couldn't buy a motorcycle to be a hell's angel. At eight, you don't know what a girl is. All the good sins, all the really big ones, but you know what you were like as a kid. You've seen little sinful children at Walmart. Maybe you've seen your own children display these qualities. When you realize the sin you were called out of, such were some of you. Some of you were really bad in the sociological sense. All of you were bad. And he uses this, that, that and this is a nice thing about it, sort of like a testimony, that, be, that just being the biggest sinner ever, and I don't even know that Paul was right about that. You know, you think, you think of the Borgias, or you think of some other just really rotten people, Idi Amin, or, or um, awful, awful people. And maybe because Paul was so pious in his wickedness, But he describes himself that way. But it, it hones his heart back into what God has done for him in Christ. That Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. 
for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, that God is willing to wait for you. He waited for me. And this, not only does he say, this is a, this is a big saying, I take it personally, not Jesus Christ died to save sinners and I've seen some sinners on campus. No, Jesus Christ died to save sinners and I know because of my sinfulness. And when I came to grace in him, he displayed his patience with me. He should have destroyed me a long time ago. And that patience he showed me, he's giving to you right now, while I'm talking to you, if you're one of those that is going to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is so overwhelmed. Not only is it so sure, full acceptance, he, he is, it's, it's, it's rhapsodic to him. Because he ends this, this paragraph with, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The book should be over. But it's not. It's in the middle of his discussion. He can't... This is uh, an element <coughs> that he doesn't list in our three things up there. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. But he does mention it in Romans, uh, first chapter. They did not honor God or give him thanks, therefore he gave them up to the futility of their minds, and their senseless minds were darkened. Part of what you're going to recognize with a sincere faith and a heart that has been purified is the greatness of this situation. The greatness of what you have experienced. I think, again, holding out against all semblance of godliness in the Wilson family till the age of eight, I was the black sheep of the family, um, made me very conscious of it. Very conscious of my repentance. Uh, very conscious that I did it on my own. Very conscious that I, to do it on my own, I almost felt dragged out of my bed. I remember being in my bed after family devotions. It was in October, God's month. And I'm, it was it was like a, one of those. Uh, you ever have a nightmare, or what's it called? Something sleep paralysis. You never. Okay, you guys aren't any fun at all. Well, I've heard of sleep paralysis. Okay, so I've had it happen to me a few times. It scares the living bejeebies out of you. You can't move. You're, it's like something sitting on your back. It might be demonic. Okay. I am no expert. I'm not going to promote speculations. But this was like the opposite. God sitting there and dragging you out of bed and getting you on your knees next to the bed. And for me at age eight, in a state of rebellion, I felt literally unable to not stop moving till I got out of bed. I tried to pray lying there in my bed. Didn't work wasn't going to take it. He wasn't going to accept it. Dragged me out of my bed on my knees next to my bed. And I'm not a knee-praying guy. And I think he probably knew that. So you, when you think of your salvation, do you think of him as the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, and honor and glory to him forever and ever. Amen. Is that, do we, we don't, we don't as a culture rhapsodize, it's always LOL, or whatever they do, smiley face, 
some emoticon. That's the degree, type in all caps. That's, that's your degree of honor. Oh, I'm excited, exclamation point for old school. Say it, just like Evan wouldn't, tried not to get on his knees. Say it. Say it aloud by yourself to the Lord. You don't have to be a good poet. It would be help if you it would help help if you were. But if you're not, just declare God's greatness to him. To yourself and to him and to the empty room you're in. Once you've meditated on the great mercy and the grace that poured this faith and love into you. This charge I commit to you, Timothy, my son in accordance with the prophetic utterances which pointed to you, and we don't know what those were, that inspired by them, you may wage the good warfare. I've said this a number of times. Timothy and Paul, Paul knows what Timothy has witnessed. Paul knows what Timothy has been educated in. He keeps pointing him back to what he has received. He saw Paul's suffering, saw Paul's life, saw his mother, his grandmother. He read the scriptures. He had someone prophesy about him, and he should be inspired by that. That you may wage the good warfare. Now, the good warfare in this situation is why he left him in Macedonia to charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. Now, this is not being Alexander the Corrector about everything. That's what, I don't know if you've ever heard of Cruden's Concordance. Not Strong's, but Cruden's. Famous Christian Concordance of a book, the words that occur in the Bible. Well, Cruden went a little bit nuts after that because, well, anybody who would do that job would become that. And he renamed himself Alexander the Corrector. And, uh, and proceeded to do so. So, um, uh, there are those sorts of people, difficult people. We're not... Uh, this is the things that are central to the faith. What is the? There are Christian lives that are being led inside of churches in the Christian culture with Christendom piled up in heaps around them, still blowing it badly. And the church not doing a thing about it. And the church not even knowing what they missed in teaching them. They just think these things happen. Timothy was placed in Ephesus in order that he would not or he could stop some of this teaching from going on. It's a good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience. It's like he means it. And then he discusses what happens when you don't. Remember he said, he listed those things in verse 5, and he says certain persons by swerving from these makes, makes you want to stick closer to those. But he, down here he says, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting conscience Certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. First century, apostolic church, Paul had taught there for three years, and at the end of which, when he was headed back to Jerusalem, he stopped and talked to the elders from this town and said, you know, out of your very midst are going to arise false teachers. Out of the elders he had trained. You can't stop this sort of thing. But that's our warfare. And we have to realize where the battle line is. It's on faith. How sincere is it? Do you believe? And is your conscience in the right place? Is your conscience, or are you opting, not having these things, 
to try to catechize people into a, a faith that is chanted and legalize people so that their conscience is replaced by law again. So that, as it says in Galatians, Christ is of no advantage to you. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander. I'd like to go down in that kind of history. Where I was not mentioned in the Bible. As a complete tool. <laughs> Whom I have delivered to Satan, that you may, they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, we could speculate all evening on what being delivered to Satan means, so let's not. But Hymenaeus shows up, and I gave you a little reference here on the side. Second Timothy, he shows up again. I just like that. Two mentions, none of them good. This is Second Timothy 2, 14. Remind them of this, and charge them before the Lord to avoid disputing about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Avoid such godless chatter, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will eat its way like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth by holding that the resurrection is past already. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in both cases, he's saying there are important people with important followings who have a kind of teaching that is law-based when they don't know what they're talking about, but it sounds pious to everybody who is equally not in the New Covenant, so they get Christian religion with the law all over it. And they lose their sight of their conscience. Their conscience, and that's why you get parents who don't want to ever turn the lights off with their, where their kids are involved. They don't want to ever give them freedom because Lord knows what they would do. You have to control this group aggressively because none of them are saved. None of them are walking in the light. Wouldn't it be better to know that none of them are saved? Just send them off on a youth retreat with no uh, chaperones. And a few bottles of vodka. You say, well, that's not a good idea. Well, why is it not a good idea? Because we haven't raised the church, guarding our consciences, purifying our hearts, having sincerity of faith. We would rather have, we parents would much rather have the reassurance of their kid chanting back the right answer. What is the chief end of man? Well, it's, what if it is what they say, which is a good thing, it's an awful thing to get there that way. These are the things that false teaching, not the kind of false teaching that denies salvation by faith alone, denies the gospel, but denies the Christian life as it's supposed to be. And between the two Timothys, when Paul's a free man, then he's a prisoner, Hymenaeus is still functioning. He hasn't been silenced. Timothy's efforts haven't been successful. He was named by name and said, you've got to shut this guy up. Second Timothy comes along, hey, he, he's upsetting the faith of people. But he doesn't say, oh, and Timothy, our, our movement to world domination is not 
working out here. You need to get, you're going to get fired if you don't start doing your job. Paul seems to understand that God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. We're not about, the Lord has won this deal. We're just trying to be faithful and trying to answer everybody who wants faithfulness, offered to them the path to faithfulness. We're trying to shut some people up because they are damaging to other people's attempt at faithfulness. But the Lord knows those who are his, and the mark of it is departing from iniquity. Well, if the effort that Paul went to with Hymenaeus and Alexander with I have delivered to Satan. Paul was a long way away. He had just, whatever delivered to Satan, is it being put out of the church? Does it mean actually turned over metaphysically to Satan? I don't know. But it's so that they would learn not to blaspheme. So this bad teaching, this approach to rejecting conscience as a guide, rejecting purity, rejecting sincerity of faith, and how would you test the sincerity of faith? Some multiple choice question? Do you have the kids all stand up in front of the Sunday school and chant back the right answers? Is it a blue book exam? Do you have to write an essay? What's the what's sincerity of faith? Because it seems that if these things get swerved from, or these things get rejected, if you're not going to live your life this way, frankly, you're going to live a damnable life. Even if there's not the kind of authority to deliver your teachers to Satan or you to Satan, you're just going to live a train wreck of a life and it's going to be called Christianity. And that's what we look at so much of the time. Do you want to be one of those families, one of those people, that the Lord knows that you're his, that your life is, uh, is one of love? And not because, and you know me, for heaven's sake, I, I'm not a loving guy. Um, I don't have any of those sensitivities. I frankly don't care about an awful lot of things. I'm a futilitarian. I, I, but, that's no excuse, my manner should be guided by the love that is in Christ Jesus in ministering to people that are my neighbors. Because that is the Second, first great commandment is love the Lord your God. Second, love your neighbor. So we've got a task before us that only the new covenant can do. And it has to be something that's percolating, issuing from a kind of Christian life that has looked to purify itself, understands being guided by its conscience, and has its faith checked as to whether or not it is actual. Not double-minded, not your religious viewpoint when you go to church, but it's the way you look at your world. Well, it's a couple minutes early, but I'm sure you don't mind. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you very much. We're grateful. We're grateful for Timothy. We'd ask you to let him know that we're studying the letter to him in North Idaho. And Lord, we trust we're being faithful to it. Uh, help us understand it more as we go through the rest of the weeks. In your son's name, amen.